But I need to say that uh, a couple of things. First of all, I need to explain that why do I begin with the Quran and Hadith? Well, it's because they really define the context uh, culturally and in terms of symbolism and all that Ibn Arabi uses in all of his writing. Uh, I have friends who are allergic to, you know, they've been done in by this or that revolution. Uh, so, you know, I say, oh, I can't put that stuff in. Let's just go to Ibn <laughs> You know, and, and I understand the reasoning, but it's not out of uh, political uh, or religious, particular party free or something. It's just that knowing that everything that goes on in Ibn Arabi is like a kind of cloud of Quranic illusions and hadith that are all interpenetrated. And if you ever start reading it in Arabi, one thing I can say is get your Quran, you get, most of you don't have the tools to look up the Hadith, get the Quran out, and because it's never just what's there, what's there in the text is like the tip of the iceberg, and it's a concept in which he assumes his readers know all of these parts of the Quran, the, the subject, and they know why he's like the this verse and not some other verse. That isn't, scholarship. That isn't just a scholarly detail. I'm not saying this is a scholar, I'm saying this is just this, it's, as you enter into that web of meaning of the Quran, and then to the understanding of the Hadith that follows from that deep penetration of the Quran, then Ibn Arabi almost don't mean it. I mean, not at first, I'm not saying this, but I mean by now, when like a subject, you threw the subject at me, and I, and I had to give a title before I had time to actually find the text of Ibn Arabi, but I had something for once in the Quran. And, I'll talk about what I discovered very briefly. But again, it's not something ancillary, it's not something uh, uh, about preaching or something like that. It's just you can't get there in an RV without appreciating this uh, role of the Quran. Uh, the next thing I wanted to repeat, uh, remind you of is, is these writings were they're deep forms of meditation. They're not meant to be lectures, they're not meant to be one off sets of ideas that you can take home, write down in your notebooks and take home. They really, it is a demanding meditating process, and it says something I think that, and I'm saying this, I hope those of you know are will appreciate it, but the text of the Futuhat, when I do find something and I'm using different tools, it takes me three times reading it before I can begin to make sense of what's going on. And it's only about the fifth time that I can begin to tie together the pieces that I begin to make sense of. And here I'm going to read a translation and expect you to walk away from understanding it. Um, the problem is, well, I hope the translation won't give any way of understanding, but what I'm saying here is not about the Arabic. And I, I remember I've done these things, but I, I can't when I say that. When I walked into the Zutsu's Vasu seminar, which had been going on on the commentaries of the Spaces of Wisdom, where I met Bill and Sajiko, and most of the people who worked in the Arabi were working there with the Zutsu at one time or another. I remember walking and having closely prepared the Fasa Shai, <laughs> which uh, we were going to discuss. And I knew that the dictionaries, and I knew Arabic pretty well by that stage, and I couldn't, I couldn't make heads or tail of it. <laughs> and uh, we were just talking about that beforehand, how difficult his language is. Once you get into it, of course, it didn't take long, and you didn't see what was going on there. But it was, it, it, so even scholars have a lot of trouble getting to the depths of what's going on here. And I say that because I really would ask you to kind of look at this talk as the first half of the seminar, where I'm kind of giving you some materials. And then tomorrow, we'll have a chance to actually share the experiences, at least I'm coming to Berkeley, the shit. You can actually look at the things that illustrate what Ibn Arm is talking about. I put four pages, a little two-page decided handout of uh, text from the Quran, the Hadith, and the poems that begin those two chapters from the Qutah. 
put those together for the talk tomorrow, but if you're not going to be here tomorrow, then uh, we have 30 or 40 copies, so we can at least give those all the way to anybody who would, and you may go to somebody else's seminar tomorrow. So we'll make more copies. It's like those uh, J. Lowe's. We'll keep on making them. So uh, be, feel free to take these uh, translations with you uh, when you go today, because now you may not remember that much of what I say, but you're supposed to feel that way, you'll have them sort of Edmund Mark to, uh, to help you out. Uh, anything else? So, uh, and again, I hope that this will appear in that elevation volume. Uh, they, they've been so nice, they invite me so frequently to these symposia that I have about 10 now. Where I I wrote them, you know, wrote them up, but I need you know about that extra twenty percent of time to polish them up and get in person in the journal into this volume. And if I took on other projects, I would still probably take a couple of years to get those all done. But it's time to get those done in any case. So now let's get back to the talk. Uh, the new title here, a little more focused, is refining our responsiveness, recognition, reflection, and the depths of God's loving mercy. That's right now. And I just want to start with the verse in the Quran that immediately came to my mind, and I think would come to anybody's mind in this Quran when you raise this topic of response and responsibility. Because, as we'll see, the Quran constantly reminds us of both God's calling, our response, and our calling, or preparing God's response. But both of those things are in this famous verse of Surah Al-Baqarah. And whenever, whenever my servants ask you about me, surely I am near. It's God speaking. I, may, I respond to the call of the one who is calling whenever he calls upon me, so may they respond to me and may they have faith in me so that they might be guided rightly. Now, the central problematic in the two chapters from his illuminations that I've come across and have been used side by side here today is how we as human beings can come to know, discern, A, what are the truly divine calls we encounter? as distinguished from all the other endless solicitations coming to the world and all the people around us, and B, once we recognize those particular indispensable calls, so the kind of capital C here, how do we discover the proper nature of our response? And certainly this is an issue no one can escape in this age of not avoidable and constant barrage of multiple media, email, messaging, mass mailings. I, I was really struck of, uh, when I was and he's pondering these verses and these passages and all to think that, you know, basically it was going to say we have to pay attention to everything that we're called to, which is always. And yet if you're like me, just your inbox is kind of, by the time you've worked its way through it, it's like three in the afternoon the day hasn't even started, you know. So uh, calling and responding is something that in the modern world we're kind of overwhelmed with in all sorts of ways. And so this, what he's talking about is process of discernment about what are the calls that matter, the ones we should respond to, and then how do we go about responding them, and what we learn, and of course what that process of discernment is by how we really discover the calls that are the, you know, the ones that you know, your email has the exclamation marks or the red lines or whatever to tell you that you've got to pay attention to this. Well, that's not easy about it, given the lines we need today. So um, just to start out before I get to the the broader context of divine and human calling and response, um, a couple of points here. A number of the key verses of both groups are on that handout that we'll talk about in the seminar tomorrow. But first of all, there are verses that talk about calling from God and are responding to God and to the messengers. Thirteen verses, I as the Quran, about call, God's calling us, and twenty-three verses about human beings as well as the jinn and the shaitan responding to God's calls. Uh, 
Apparently, there also, in many of these contexts, the Quran suggests there are similar calls, outwardly and similar calls, coming from the Shia team, the Satans, and the endless worldly associates, Mushrik, uh, of uh, those people, or other religions, and directed towards many illusory saviors and friends, or rescuers of would be bodies. So, the Quran already raises the problematic of God's call in the context of the fact that we're constantly being called in all other directions as well. So, uh, find our uh, spiritual kibla to kind of, uh, in responding to that call. But Franz has a lot to say about the conditions for effective prayer and calling. And by the way, these are two very simple words. The word da'a, as a picture once or twice, sa'alam. But mostly the word both from God and from our side of the same very straightforward every term for this call. Uh, the uh, response uh, there, I want to diminish this because it isn't reflected in the translation, but there's a simple Arabic fourth form word, the job to respond, and most of the Quranic and Hadith sources use this very complex tenth verbal form, istajaba, um, where it's about seeking to do something fully or completely and fulfilling uh, the response. So it's uh, there's no English word that really captures that. It's like um, I was thinking my daughter's here, took a break from all the babies at the moment. <laughs> and uh, I've got a son here in the audience too, just a pair, you know, here. But I was thinking of with children, you know, that this java is like, um, you don't just like stuff a pacifier in the baby's mouth, you know, unfortunately. Uh, that would be like a java, you know, to respond. But this java is you take the baby in your arms, you pacify them, you give them whatever else it is they desire, but you basically take care of all their needs. And the Quran basically says, we're in God's arms that way. Um, I love there's one point where he says, he says, God's in there uh, madly in love with our heart. Um, and, and one of the poems we'll get to as parents are madly in love with their, their new children. So, uh, so this, there's importance to this nuance of the Arabic here. Um, and then the other thing that's talked about in the eschatological language department is the signs of God's responsiveness to our prayers, our calling, and the failure to respond to the associates and others that we take to be God's. Uh, the hadith, what I love here, because it, it's as often Ibn Harvey just takes what is already there in the movement in the Quran of the hadith and puts it in a more universal form. And basically, as so often in Hadith, the general metaphysical principles of the Quran are brought down. Basically, the Hadith make it much clearer that God calls us through other people, through all the other people in our life and our experience, whether those people be on earth or in other domains, uh, such as the Prophet. Um, and some of these that I'm going to read are Hadith Putsi, where God is speaking directly, whoever calls upon me, I will respond to him. That's the famous long Hadith Putsi about the last third of the night. Uh, verily, he responds to the person from to each of us, uh, to the person from the unseen or spiritually the zakra light. Something that we'll, we could bring out in discussion that the divine responses are often, well, from beginning to end, are often mysterious and uh, miraculous. Uh, respond to the one who calls, which is command the, the proper order is to respond to the one who calls. Whoever responds to the messenger of God and when God support him, uh, and call and it will be responded to, ask and it will be given. And the gospel resonance there is often find in study. The messenger of God used to respond even to the calling of a slave, Mamluk. Whoever does not respond to the call disobeys God and his messenger. He responds to whoever calls upon him. Even if I were languishing in prison, I would respond to the one who calls. 
Even if I were called in honor of faith, I would respond. If he calls upon me, I respond to him. And the noble one, Karim, even if he is called to the Tawny and the North Wind, still responds. But this is just, I, I mean, we could do a whole symposium in any one of these hadith. It's just to give you an idea of the richness of this thing that you rather providentially came up with. It. And by the way, I hope this also helped Todd, you and the other speakers, you know, maybe in terms of like, cover some of this Quran uh, heavy context that will come up in talks uh, tomorrow as well. So, having done that sort of prelude, I'm going to talk about Ibn Arabi's insights, chapters 519 and 520 of the Quran, the Nations. Uh, the two chapters, and I'm going to have to read here, um, basically, Michael, you can put up your hand like the police if I go too fast. You know, that's my secret advice, so I'll let my son do it. <laughs> I may not see you at first, but just wait a little if I go, please. I always try to spam as much as I can, so don't want to go too fast. So it's too fast, you stop. Yeah, slow me down. The two chapters of Mecca Illuminations, which are entirely devoted to Arby's reflections on the full extent of demands of our human responsiveness to God's calling, in chapters 519 and 520, are part of the lengthy final order of the entire Kutuhat, the long division of the spiritual mottos of the Zikris, the, the possibility of. Octave, but actually it's about the, of the spiritual poles, the octave, the central figures among the hierarchy of the Aliyah, the friends of God, and their Mohammedan spiritual stations. Uh, again, long footnotes for each, about six key technical terms here that I can't go into in the lecture, but I, I think the main thing is what's a hajir? A hajir, as even David Arby uses, word zikr in the second chapter, but it's a formula, a spiritual formula that captures for us. Um, something that actually we can't help when we're working with some process spiritually. It's something that's sent to us and that we can't get out of our minds. Now, most of the hajiris that I experienced in life and talking to my students in the front class I'm doing right now, most of the time they're musical in the culture we live in now. I mean, these are Quranic ones, and I have Quranic ones very often, but uh, I thanks to him because uh, this Edie Raquel song, This I, which my mom came up with, uh, popped in, uh, in my life under circumstances we've been a little bit about. And uh, it's this wonderful guitar and her uh, singing it. I'll bring the music tomorrow for the seminar. But it's everything I'm going to lecture about is in about 12 lines of this song. And so, uh, but what happens? These are the things that we don't even, first, we don't even know why we take them out of our minds, but they're the answer to something that's going on in our lives at the time. And that, and that may that we do something visual, it may be a memory. But the word hijir, this is what Ibn Arabi's getting at. It's these particular formulas. And uh, you know, if, if you're around Quran, they're going to be often Quranic, but it's something, again, that's very human. So he, just to give it, in introducing this immense yet profoundly intimate treasury of spiritual wisdom, and again, this is a quarter of the entire Qutab, and also the final, almost all of the final quarter of the repetition. So roughly maybe 10, 300, 400 page volumes of, uh, in English. Ibn Arabi explains the focus of these 85 chapters as follows. So let's begin with the spiritual poles and the spiritual models, these hijirat, that they manifest. I mean by that, by the word hijirat, those distinguishing indicators, these are. Uh, Along the road signs almost such that whoever acts according to them finds, that is, experiences what those poles found and witnesses what they witness. So 
this isn't about becoming this or that poem, but it's actually about a particular kind of learning which comes to us when we're engaged with this or that particular scriptural verse. And as you all know, this, this works with scriptures from other than God as well. Um, because I constructed this book of mine, or rather God constructed it, not I, in order to help benefit and fully inform the people. For all of it is a spiritual illumination, a constant opening from God. So before beginning these two key chapters, it's important to highlight that the interconnection with the guy, of these guiding Quranic verses that make up the, the basic subject of each of these chapters, in each case, surely has to do with the contrast in the Quran between that mode of responding to God, which gives you life in, in terms of the first verse, which I'll read to you shortly, in chapter 519, and the state of those who, in the next chapter, and in verse 636, are described as dead, mota, because they failed to truly listen and act upon God's ever-present call. So chapter 519, recognition and reflection, all experience is divine messenger. Um, I need to stop here and say there are a few technical terms that come in here that are familiar to people who frequent it at and certainly one of the hardest to get across um, is this notion of the insanokama, the uh, universal human or complete human reality, or otherwise he calls it the Mohammedan reality, the reality of Muhammad. Uh, in traditions most of you are familiar with, it's the Lobos. It's the in fact, we can't talk about logos with turning it into a doctrine or a theory. It's not a theory, it's the ruh in its ordered manifestations. It's the ensemble of all spiritual principles that or govern this and all other worlds. And it's the active presence of that principle and of that spirit in all dimensions of our experience. It's human beings and sound what we're talking about here. Uh, that is uh, why that is central to an RV. We did come up with the idea of recognition. It has its equivalents in the other traditions, you know. But I need to say that because he's all the time talking about the messenger and the Mahajan reality and so forth. And if you didn't know Ibn Arabi, you'd almost imagine he was saying exactly the diametric opposite of what he in fact was saying in, this, in these chapters of the So, uh, and by the way, um, what can I say about this? The other thing I wanted to say is the Quran has a term for ayat which is applied, again, to all experience, both internal and outward. But Ibn Hardy here is using this experience of calling as something that's both more complex and more personal than the abstract ayat. So, obviously, um, knowing that there's a sign you see somewhere that tells you, well, you get ill and you go home and rest, that's, anything would be a sign, it doesn't have to be particularly profound. But um, a call from God is literally like you know, I'll call from God, you answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I leave it on hold. I can buzz. But, you know, if he calls, you know, he usually wants to know. It's on the So it's much stronger than Ayat, even though it's talking about the same reality. So the focus of Ibn Arabi's reflection in this chapter is the following celebrated chronic verse, which we first saw here in full because the emphasis in its second part of God's constant transforming and illuminating presence, even closer to each person than our own heart. Constantly underlies the Sheikh's emphasis here on the difficulties of properly recognizing and appropriately responding to the endless succession of divine messengers, which is again all experience in its conception, and the infinite messages or signs that constitute every moment of our unfolding earthly experience. Here's the, again, I'm going to forget me the given time, I'm just going to say it in English, uh, chapter 8, verse 24. Of those who have faith, respond to God and to the messenger. When he calls you all to it, gives you life. 
and he calls you all to the future. And though the God passes or shifts or is transformed or intervenes between the person and his heart, by the way, excludes, ex- please excuse the masculine nature. I, it, it's very complicated to turn this into gender neutral imagery, but it's not about his heart as opposed to hers. I, I just need to say that, it's a little embarrassing to be still using these pronouns, but know that God passes or shifts or is transformed or intervenes between the person and his or her heart, and that is to him for who that you all are being gathered. Now since each chapter, each vow, the doorway of the illumination begins with a highly complex metaphysical poem that carefully summarizes the subject and all the import of that particular doorway, we have begun a full translation of that opening poem here, despite the difficulties, the density of its poetic language, inevitably poses in the presentation. So the title is Concerning the Inner Knowing from Anatha of the State of the Pole, the spiritual way station is, is first, respond fully to God and to the messenger who calls you all to what brings you to life, who brings you alive. When you are called, respond. Since God is calling you, for he does not call, but that he's also giving you. These are, there are no wrong, uh, wrong calls. Or, what do you call those? Hang ups? The person calls you and doesn't answer. You know? God doesn't hang up. You know? <laughs> So do not call that he's also giving, giving you, he's also calling you in order to give to you. You are a fully sufficient one. This is very, uh, he's using his divine name, the self-sufficient, and saying to each of us, you are in fact a So bestow generously from what he has brought to you, what is in harmony with Pach, for the all-loving follows you. Here's another translation problem. I said Pach there because is what is real, what is right, and what is our due, our obligation, and responsibility. So respond with what is in harmony, with what is right, for the all-loving follows you. Actually, he also is the word Yatlu, not only follows you, he's actually reciting you. Yatlu is also, he's, the divine speech is, I'm sorry, every line in these poems, you need five translations for each line. Because he's saying, as very chronically, that we're all being recited. The whole world is being recited by God. It is Quran. It is that recitation. It's Torah. It's all these other recitations. And so the meaning of reciting and following two very different meanings, but both equally appropriate. And everything that is contrary to the Haq, ponder it with deep consideration, the thoughtful reflection, taking this poem. Don't ever say, that's not for my Lord, and skip over it, my sustainer, my wrong. For the all-knowing, by way of fact, of the man, the is bringing that to you. So, this is really the key point, is we all love to say, you know, the good stuff comes, hey, bring it on back, you know. But, um, unfortunately, the lessons rarely take that kind of uh, happy face form, you know. So, don't say that's not for my Lord, skip over it. For the all-knowing, by way of fact, the man is bringing that to you. So take that, what we call a contrary experience, of what we don't think is from God, and examine it deeply with the instrument you know that is the optical understanding. For surely everything in his existence in common is in you. For surely everything in his existence is in you. Do not blame in any way anything that you, you are ignorant of, nor should you even criticize each divine address that is bestowed upon you. Again, the Khatab is the notion here that, that all of our life is in fact constantly being given messages to, to deal with and respond to and to train us. Surely Bhagavad Allah has a cunning way, has a makar, with a group of among his creatures. 
So strive to realize or actualize this. Essential good qualities. I, I probably should say a little bit here about Makar because uh, it's a frequent uh, references in the Quran, and, and the whole point here being that we don't live in a universe that we imagine that we would make if we were God. We live in a universe that's designed to test and challenge and teach us, and Makar is simply the term for the teacher's understanding. Again, I think they're going to raise the kids, or that's good, you know. You always have to use marker with your kids all the time, which is like uh, cunning. <laughs> but it's wise cunning, you know. Uh, you know, there's no benefit in running off that roof or jumping into that stream or running in front of a car. You know, I know it looks good if you're a baby or your toddler or whatever, but you know, I'm going to have to use all these bribes and techniques and things that we develop as parents. All through you know, teenagers, much worse, of course. We <laughs> need much more marker. <laughs> you did working with teenagers. Like, you can tell you've got a lot of kids. <laughs> so God, from his point of view, is doing the same thing with us. I mean, most of our lessons are things that are they're never sugar sugarcoated. The stuff that is sugarcoated comes straight from the Shayatina and Sojin. Um, they love sugarcoating. <laughs> Once the sugar wears off, it's pretty sad. Okay, so God has this marker with a group among his creatures. So strive to realize or actualize this. You're essential, you're good quality to your mind, or that means it's the word realize actually, it's the word talk to talk to. And never say, this does not come into the scale of intelligence of the divine intellect, for its current, its present also flows and carries and flies to you. Now know may God inspire and support us to be with the Holy Spirit. By the way, uh, every chapter pretty much when Puhat begins with God, support and inspire us and you with the Spirit from Him. First time I've seen the Holy Spirit, some of you may have read that in other chapters, but it's rare. Um, so it's saying something very special about this chapter because it's kind of like not just a spirit, but the whole of the spirit. This whole chapter is about the spirit as the messenger, as the Logos, but uh, is constantly coming to all of us. That there is no clear indication in the Quran indicating that the complete human being, not the biped, but the reality of all understanding is created according to the divine form of the Rahman. He's alluding here to the Hadith, the Rahman, the Mu'ti Elohim in the Torah, so that you're created. It's a little different because it's the image of the All-Loving, the All-Merciful, the All-Compassionate. That uh, this mentioned a reminder in this verse, because it's a grammatical point, but it says, respond to God, and it doesn't say respond to God and the messenger, kind of like, oh, the message is part of that. To respond to God and respond to the messenger. So he's saying these are two different commandments, two different things, and we need to constantly discern them because, as we'll learn, God is primarily through the revelations and scriptures, whereas the messenger in this case turns out to be all of reality and all of experience. For God and his messenger are only calling us to what brings us to life. Thus, the response is required of us in every state in these two calls, since there is not any state that it is from him. Therefore, we must necessarily respond to him whenever those who call us, since he is sustaining us in all our states. Hence, he only distinguished here between God's calling and the messenger's calling in order that we might uh, come to realize or actualize through that, the form of the will of God, of the all-loving, the all that the messenger occupies, while he is the calling to us in both those states, only means God is calling us both to the messenger and directly. So when he calls us to the Quran, the messenger is informing us and translating to us from God. Then that call is God's calling, so that our response is to God. Well, the messenger is causing us to listen. Listen is very important here. 
But when he calls us through other than the Quran, then that calling is the messenger's calling to us, so that our responding should be to the messenger. In other words, when other people are calling us, our response should be to those other people. It doesn't, if we respond to them, it'll get to the right destination as well. But, you know, don't mix up your mailboxes. There's the big mailbox, and then there's the everyday mailbox. And Ibn Arabi's mainly talking to us about the everyday mailbox, the people that are calling us. Okay, I mean, that's right. That's never going to go in the lecture. That's lecture stuff. That's never going to get in the text. Don't worry. I'm just, I'm going to teach you a little bit. So, okay. So there's um, no difference at all between the two callings as far as our obligation to respond, although each calling is distinguished from the other by the difference of the calling. Uh, throughout this, um, thus one might to reflect upon who is being called upon and what he is being called to do. And, and he means each of us. Again, then if you explain your experience as an additional life of spiritual life, Hayat al-Niyazadah, in the state he is in, which brings him to life through the very calling himself, then he is obligated to respond to whoever calls him, whether that is God or the messenger. For he is only being ordered to respond when he is called what brings him to life. Since God and his messenger don't call him to anything but what brings him to life. So if he does not find or experience that taste of a strange additional life, Hayat al then he doesn't know who's calling, and it's probably not God. But our goal here is nothing but the real attainment of that through which we are brought to life, and it's for the sake of this that we hear and willingly obey. Now he makes three points about this response. So what is indispensable is that the person called must first actually perceive this effect or influence through which the appropriate response for him to this call is particularized and specified. Um, and I, we're going to have so much fun with this tomorrow in the seminar when it comes because you just have to think. I mean, I, 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 I kind of, this is just an amazing thing, but like the last 10 minutes before we started, like these people came, like really major people from major moments of my life that I hadn't seen like in 37 years or 10 years or whatever, sort of, sort of fall out of the sky and turn up here, you know. So, you know, we all, you know, this is such an obvious thing. What is in the sense of must first actually perceive this effect of influence of discovering life through that particular specified call. And, and it's, it's, it's very important. It's not abstract. It's not very, very, it's very concrete. So that's the first stage of the calls. We have to recognize it for what it is. And as I said, this is something we really need to sit and talk with each other about because it's, we all know this when it happens and we all know how strange it is that it doesn't make any sense, but I better just give in and, and respond to it in miracle sense. And that's the next stage. Then if the person of this description who actually listens to this initial quality, this calling, responds to it, then we attain through that call we heard another life through which the heart of this listener is brought to life. And thirdly, and if what this person heard from the messenger in this calling requires of us a certain action, and this works pretty well to translate the he's and the us's and he's, and we carry out that action, then we have a third life. So the three stages absolutely essential. Just think of the encounters with people that last throughout your life. Um, they're all like this. You meet somebody, and life comes along, you didn't expect it, you respond to it, and of course then the miracles start to happen, and then you put it into practice, and uh, uh, you, you stay connected way on beyond the side. To reflect on all that servant deprives himself of whenever he does not listen to the calling of God and the messenger. 
for all of existence, all of which is God's words, and the divine promptings that reach our soul, the spectacle turn modern death. But basically, again, all of those intuitions and these signs of life that come to us when we least expect them. So all of existence is God's words, and these modern death, these experiences that come to us from that realm are all of them messengers from God's presence. That is how they are experienced by the knowers of and through God. Since for, for them, every speaker is nothing but God, and every saying is a new knowing of God. So that the only wording that remains to be understood or worked out is the intended form of, that is, the actual practice and consequences of what is heard and understood from that particular divine speaking. Because of that divine speaking, there is the speech of conformity to the divine prescription, meaning to life. I love the way that Marvel takes his terms here. Um, use the word shock here. Now that root, um, first once in the Quran, um, people give it all sorts of crazy meanings. He says, but notice the way he's using it here is we know these things that come to all of us as human beings are all of them divine messengers, and that the form, if we hear them properly, they are speech asking us to conform to the shark, to the ongoing, ever-present revelation, which constitutes everyone's life. That's the meaning of shark, and it's that revelation which leads to the water of life. So it's, the word itself is integrally connected to hayat, to life. And the speech, which is trial and affliction. By the way, if we didn't have it to love, we'd never really learn much. So uh, there's trial and affliction in these divine speeches as well. So all that is left, so all that's left is the proper understanding to which that difference in relative imminence takes place. Um, wouldn't it be nice if all that email from God came in the form like, this is punishment and affliction and trouble, and this is blessing, and, you know, but of course, we all know, at least I've lived long enough, I've only been in God me, that all the stuff I didn't want were the blessings, and all the stuff I thought was like manna from heaven. Well, it was manna from heaven, but I kind of reacted like the Israelites to you know, you want the troubles. Okay, so now those who are learned in the external traits, as the Olamat assume, not a polite term, this is why it's against all these folks, restricted themselves to the particular speech of God called the Quran and Quran, and to the particular messenger named Muhammad. But the knowers of God generalized that listening to all speaking, these are all capitals, and they heard the Quran as connecting this. He's using Quran here, and it's not etymologically correct, but he's using the Quran as a connecting of all things to their source, and it's not a separating, so he doesn't, it's not separation. What Quran properly understood is what brings us back to God, and not what separates us. And they generalize God's sending the messages to the category of all forms of this message, and to its universal, universal inclusivity, not to any particular era of time. So for the knowers, every calling in the world is a messenger, inwardly or spiritually, bodily, even if they are separated outwardly. Uh, then he goes on to describe the Iblis, uh, as you see in the Quran, the Iblis and all of his agents, their sorcery or magic, and how they are also sent uh, and allowed their particular influences, but only with God's permission. So they're part of the whole messaging system. So the knower is happy, blessed, even in receiving the message of Satan, Shaitan, since he knows how to receive that, while others are pain and miserable through that. That is, they are the people who lack the spiritual knowing. Of course, all the people of faith, together with the knowers among them, are also happy with the message of the divine messengers. But the person who is acting and working in accordance with the genuine knowing of what was brought in that divine message is happier than the person of faith who has faith in that only in terms of outward agreement and words, 
while disobeying it in action and speech. Therefore, everything that is changing, and this is Genesis and the, uh, um, Aristotle, since everything in the Baha'i, the moving and shifting in the world is a divine messenger, whatever this motion or change may be. For nothing moves, not even an atom, without God's permission. So the knower looks for what is brought about through its motion or change, and from that he seeks to draw the benefit of knowing that he did, of a knowing that he did not have before. To be sure, what the knowers take from these endless changing messengers is different according to the messengers. And he gives a long message about how the knowers know how to deal with Satan. And he gives an example uh, that uh, a foolish person, when they encounter some wrongdoing, will immediately rush out and bring about disaster for that person and their family and everything else. But that uh, the knower will know to be satar. Uh, it's a kind of uh, spiritual virtue that's perhaps peculiar to Islam, but it's definitely God's quality is to, uh, to let people, for the most part, uh, receive their training and education and um, corrective punishment, shall we say, privately and not publicly. And uh, so that's what he's alluding here, is that the knowers see as many other examples to many of these come to a kind of paradox that they find in this is. So to summarize, this is my way to summarize. So the whole world for the knower is a messenger from God to him, and that messenger in his message, I mean the whole world, with respect to that knower, is a loving mercy of Rahman, because the messengers are only sent as a loving mercy. About the problem. So if they were sent with an affliction, that would actually be a divine loving mercy and concealment, because the divine loving mercy encompasses everything. Indeed, there is no thing there that is not within that is not within this divine loving mercy of Rahman. Surely your sustainer is all encompassing in forgiveness, He's more knowing of him since he brought the law for the And he poses, uh, he poses a wonderful illustration about Muhammad's forgiveness, his universal forgiveness, and his understanding of the limits of his followers. Uh, actually, it's such a good story, but one of the Arab veteran, the Nazi-Nazi close companion, is the prophet hears him saying, you know, well, God bless my tribe, and Everybody in it, except for so-and-so, who will pull curse and destroy. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, I mean, everybody's laughing because we do this all the time, right? I mean, it's a natural human state. And the prophet doesn't say, oh, you're a horrible man, you're going to hell for feeling this, because he knows very well. He's just saying what we all feel about various people, but at various times. But again, he does um, repeat the prayer, but without the pardon of cursing and, and damning the person who's got to want to be even with. So, and I just have a few minutes. When did we actually get started on the clock? Four or two? Four or two. So, uh, the next one is shorter. Chapter 520. Recognition and forgiveness, the universal extent of God's loving mercy. The Hijir, the Zikr here, is only those respond who are truly listening. That's all. But uh, you can translate this word both. We have it in English here and listen. And again, as we all discover about having kids, uh, they sometimes hear, but they rarely listen. <laughs> so I couldn't improve that. It always just changes its form of failure to listen. But that's how they learn, you know. But they all act like they hear. They are, of course, the same given our basic point here is that he's talking about we don't respond unless we're truly listening. And then he has interesting say, if you're not, although the audio goes on, and as for the dead, God raises them up. They will get their chance later on, and then they'll get their return. 
So you have this contrast between those who listen and who find their way constantly to this life that God is offering, and people who, if they don't listen, and if you're not listening, you're certainly not going to recognize and act upon that listening uh, in, the, in a state of spiritual death. This E.D. Rickell song is really amazing the way he puts this all together. So here's the poem. Considering the earnest, earnest owing of the title of the state of the whole of the spiritual station is only those who respond fully who are truly listening. Certainly I jealously guard my heart, so I ask it not to be disturbed within itself by any human creature in Russia. So he's starting off with this kind of ascetic tone of what a lot of people think religion is about. For we have a heart within which he roams, the divine who the spirit roams about and is madly in love. I wonder that he You know, this is Christ, this is Vajrun how he feels about Layla. He doesn't even know where he is. He's just and he doesn't really care anymore about it. Whether she's where he happens to be, he's just out there wandering and beginning to see that Mayla is wherever he is, so imagination comes throughout. So we have this heart within which he roams about his love. In every state, both the transcendence and of his manifestation through the forms. Actually, the manifestation is added through the forms of existence. When I heard the urgent calling of the death of the real through me, I responded to him, guarding against the unblue influence of domination or any other. Uh, he would not quite ironic at times, because he wants you to participate in him. So I said, what? And then he said, aha! <laughs> I said to him, what do you want? <laughs> Bob Dylan's song, God Save Abraham. He said, God, you must be putting me on. This is kind of the same thing. I said, that's it. I said, hey, you said, what? <laughs> okay, and he goes on. You know, well, this is the drama that Tim Harvey is. I did read the song. This is it, like one line. So, you can do what you uh, want, but next time you see me, you better run. You better run. Well, that's the punchline. Well, this isn't the way it goes here. So, the guy said, what do you want? And he said, be on guard against all guardedness. So, you know, Ibn Arabi starts out, oh, you know, piety is being guarded and being careful, just, you know, not doing anything that might get you in trouble, or, you know, just, if you don't do anything, how many people have ever tried that particular spiritual ploy that if I basically don't do anything, then I can't sin? Why? <laughs> 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 I mean, really? Henceforth, I have lived, I've enjoyed life. This is the word ish, ish. Aish uh, and all the prophets and women on this. I'm really delighted in God's body, in good spirits. I am, that's wherever I am. And I do not fear the occurrence of any harms or damage. Rather enormous trans- transition in the beginning and end of that poem. So know may God support us and heal with the Spirit from Him that we remain in this state, of, in this sacred, when God bestowed on us the success of employment. In Seville, in the country of Andalusia, in the year 586. I'm reading that because, it, you know, one of the things that makes these two authors of Gaudi uh, Rumi and uh, Ibn Arabi so amazing, and I think it comes to a large part of their interest in the modern world, is, as in most spiritual traditions, most people wrote in this kind of hieratic form where people taught through 
archetypes and traditions and forms, and what brings the Fudoha to life, and really far more than the, uh, the emphasis in my opinion, is precisely he comes back down here. Okay, for three days I live this thicker with these two friends in, in Sevilla. It's exactly the way this stuff happens in our lives. When God bestowed on us the success of playing in we experienced that it brought a special spiritual blessing to Baraka in those three days. There were three of us in that state, myself, Abola Nasuni, and he says he was a noble party, a bright servant, government jurist, and a third person from the people in that country. And now, and here he's explaining what between hearing and listening. Now, if we really know what we heard, then our actions and quotes with what we know. For real knowledge is dominated. It's going to sound like Socrates for a few minutes here, but it goes way beyond Socrates. For real knowledge is dominating and controlling its influence. That is necessarily the case. And if a person isn't like this, then it isn't really knowledge at all. For a knower who knows the punishment for his committing an act of disobeying God absolutely never disobeys God. Now he's using knowing here not in some, you know, form of words or whatever. But and notice that this is not much different from how we find everything else in life. You know, how we go through from being toddlers primary school kids, and teenagers, and parents, and all that sort of work in life. It's exactly what he's talking about here. We have to learn the punishments um, before we can really begin to act out of the knowledge of the consequences. And of course, that knowledge, that real knowledge, necessary includes knowing that that action really is an act of disobedience and a divine judgment rather than being convention. And here again, it's something that an RP expands on. I will hear it in the other places how ill-related our human notions are to, uh, to uh, notions of divine um, proper action and from that side. Uh, here it continues with the long ways, um, the different ways that the person of faith can't really know their ultimate destiny, whether that be a punishment or divine forgiveness. There are ways of parent, a person who apparently disobeys God even when that person dies. Uh, having reviewed these possibilities, he concludes again that no one disobeys God while knowing, really knowing, the punishment or consequences. Now, we had already asked God for that service, that worship thing for which he created us, so he heard and listened and he listened and responded. And it goes on. So this verse of Zikr is a powerful reminder of all the all-encompassing scope of God's loving mercy towards his creatures. For he informs, I, I use the word loving mercy for Rafa in this kind of context because it's it lots of times it's just absolute love and absolute compassion, but it also has this element of mercy um, in the odd sense that the person who has to be forgiven is not usually being forgiven for what they've done, but they be forgiven for the fear that they have about what they think is the reaction to what they've done. Does that make any sense? Yes. We've all been those kids in there. You know, I'm like, oh my God, I told the guard. <laughs> Our youngest just told the guard when we went off to college. You know? And of course, everybody's reaction is not, oh, you told the guard. It's, God, you're alive. You're not really injured. You know? <laughs> Again, guess what? God has the same attitude. Um, he informed us that the only person who really listens fully responds. So the person who doesn't listen has found their excuse, just as the person who has not been informed about the divine calling has also found their excuse. And the state of the person who doesn't really listen is like the state of the person who God has not sent a messenger. So when we see someone who has not responded, we know by God's directly informing us that that person hasn't really listened yet. He doesn't have the yet, that's not yet. Okay, but yeah, it's important, very important. Okay, so uh, let's see, any remarks about the chronic verse where uh, all the messengers are brought together and like, asked them, how did your people respond to you? And they said, we have no knowledge of that. 
uh, surely, with all the practicing back here, surely you, you are the Allah of the hidden things, Allah of you. So we learn from the messenger saying there that the knowledge of people's responsiveness to God is among the knowledge of the unseen, restricted only to God. So we knew that this truth is seen as well as from the unseen. Remember the Zahrafayr in the Hadith. So that no one knows who is truly responding except for the one who has been given the unseen, and that is only God. Hence God has only set up this excuse for his service, because in himself is the intention that he can have mercy on him. So God has had mercy on some of the people for causing them to listen, so that they respond to their sustainer, and he goes on the answer prayer expression. And as for those who did not respond, God has also sought an excuse for them in what they did not listen. So how immense is God's loving mercy towards his servants while they are not even aware of it? Indeed, I saw one group of those who were vainly disputing about this vast extent of God's loving mercy and who were restricting it to only one special sect. So they restricted and narrowed down what God had vastly extended, something that's forbidden and from. Indeed, were God not to have mercy on someone among his creatures, then he would remove his loving mercy precisely from whoever says that. You know, this guy has some tough barbs there. <laughs> They're usually for reserve bits and things. Um, as in that point. But instead, God has refused everything but the universal inclusiveness of his loving mercy. So among us are those who receive that by way of beautiful merit, I would do, those who are pious and give the required alms, who have faith and follow the messenger, the unlimited prophet. And among us are those who accept God's mercy by way of this freely offered grace and command. In the very essence of the divine grace to come. And by God I am not, thanks to be God, thanks be to God, among those who love witnessing mutual torment and vengeance against the servants of God. Um, uh, let me just repeat that. And by God, says here, I am not, it's really in his language, thanks be to God, the coming love, among those who love witnessing mutual torment and vengeance against the servants of God. Um, you could write a lot of books about that sentence. Instead, God created me as a loving mercy. Somebody would argue himself And he made me an heir to the loving mercy of the one to whom is said by God, we have only sent you as a loving mercy to all the worlds. And then that description of the messenger, he did not specify some person of faith over against any other creature, as far as the reception of that universal mercy. So verify, realize that. <laughs> and open the eye of your understanding to what you read and say with the prophet, my sustainer, increasing in love, prophets in love. Which is to say, ask that he increase you in your understanding. If you do so, each time you repeat your recitation of these verses that they are in prayer, you will increase in your awareness of knowledge and discover a knowledge you do not have before. And whenever you reflect deeply and seek the deeper meaning of things, you will increase in knowing that God speaks the truth and starts right into the path.